Hello everyone, this is Emil Kalinowski and everyone is talking about inflation. On Twitter this morning, Isabella Kaminska, who was on our show not too long ago, said there's a, been a big inflation in the number of op-eds written by people who remember the 1970s. And she's got a few examples. Peter Hitchens in the Mail Online. I remember inflation wrecking lives and I can see it coming back. Then you got Liam Halligan from the Sunday Telegraph. Serious inflation is coming and time to start addressing it is now. Alex Brumer of the Daily Mail. Daily Mail. There's an inflation time bomb at the heart of our economy and I fear that it has started to tick. The whole article is just the word tick, 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 tick. That's the whole article. So ladies and gentlemen, we're gonna talk about that with Jeff Snyder, the head of global research at Alhambra Partners. And Jeff, we're going to go over two articles and we're going to bring some nuance to this discussion regarding an increase in consumer and producer prices relative to inflation. Is there a difference between the two? So Jeff, well, welcome to the show. Yeah, let's define inflation first and foremost. And let's use the standard textbook definition because I think that fits what we're trying to accomplish and what we're trying to look at here, which is that it's a general rise in consumer prices over a prolonged or sustained period. And so there's really those two parts, right? The first part is generalized, which means it's not just one segment of prices or one price or even you know, a, a part of the CPI bucket. It's pretty much everything. You know, of the vast majority of consumer prices, they're all going up by a, 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 an unusual rate. And then the second part is sustained over a prolonged period. It's not something that you just happens for a couple months or a couple weeks or whatever. Or even a year. Or even a year, right, as we've seen in the past. It's something that happens and it, it, it gathers and it continues and it goes on and on and on for a very prolonged period. So a short burst of inflation isn't really inflation. Give us a couple of examples or more than a couple. When were these moments of inflation as we just the momentary them? we talked about one before back in 1947 and 1948. Not, when not the, the not the momentary one. I'm talking oh, about yeah. inflation versus a general versus a rise in consumer prices. Because that's what we're going to be talking about in your article. We've got a lot of examples of a increase in consumer prices that are not inflation. But what are we thinking about? Is it the 70s, the 80s, the 90s? The, the 70s are usually the, the, the uh, period most people turn to because it was the most obvious and prolonged and sustained and broad-based uh, trend in consumer prices. And it started in 1965. So from 1965 to 1970, you had sort of this upward slope of consumer prices where before 1965 inflation had been low for a prolonged i mean going back to 1929 you had the great depression and then even into the, the 50s and early 60s you had a period of low inflation high economic growth throughout most of the rest of the world and all of a sudden in 1965 things started to shift where all of a sudden you started to see consumer prices rise and then they go up a little more then they go a little faster and a little faster and a little faster until you get to 1970 where you got Consumer prices rising by six and seven percent in the United States, and it, it, uh, in some places around the world at even greater levels. So before we even get to the 1970s, we've got inflation building and rising and momentum gaining, and you could see that it was sustained because here we have a five-year, half-a-decade period where it was just going up and up and up and up, and it was sort of a slower 
buildup. It wasn't, you know, everything just exploded onto the scene. It was, okay, the CPI is now 3% this year, and then it's 4% the next year, and it just doesn't seem to want to go away. It's not just a short, sharp burst, and then, oh, oh we're, in, we're in inflation. It's, it's coming, it's coming, it's coming, it's building, it's building, it's building. And economic activity and growth was good in this period. Is that right? Because we don't want inflation, consumer prices rising, and economic activity being awful, right? So were these periods that we're looking for, these examples, and that what we're trying to attain, there's good economic activity that comes well, part always, and parcel. Yeah, there's always nominal growth with inflation because that's what inflation, it's nominal expansion. The problem is when you account for the price changes, you end up seeing that you go nowhere. So you get paid $120 rather than $100, but now it costs you $95 to live instead of the $60 it used to. So you're further and further behind, even though nominally things start to expand. And in the, that first phase of the great inf inflation in, in the United States from 1965 to 1970, it didn't seem like it was all that bad because the expansion in the economy from the 60s and 50s and 60s continued on. It wasn't until after that recession in 69, 70 that things really started. We started to really see the dark side of inflation, which was something that shocked everyone because going back to the adoption of the Phillips curve, especially the exploitable Phillips curve in 59 and 60, it was thought that inflation and unemployment were direct trade-offs. If you have higher inflation, you have lower unemployment. That was the idea of the exploitable Phillips curve under you know, Samuelson and Soloff when they said, look, we'll tolerate a little bit higher inflation if it gives us better, a lower level of unemployment. And then starting in 1969, 1970 with that recession, what we found was that there was a real dark side to this inflation stuff. And that dark side was you can have higher inflation and higher unemployment at the same time, <laughs> which was sort of, you know, that's what Milton Friedman and some of the other Chicago school economists had warned about when they said, look, if this stuff really gets going, and this is what all these op-eds that Isabella was talking about, you know, this is what they're talking about. If this inflation stuff really gets going and it gets into the pro prolonged sustained advance, that's when you really see the, the, the real nasty side of it. Because now, not only do you have prices going up, but you also have high levels of unemployment. You have high levels of slack in the economy, which suggests that, you know, something else is going on here. There's something else propelling this inflation forward. And it really is a really nasty form of economic monetary disease. And so we're going to take a couple of examples from the past now to point out what is just a rise in consumer prices. That's not inflation. And the people can follow along reading your article at Alhambra Investments. It was posted on May 12th, 2021. And how can anyone in their right mind say that this much inflation is transitory? I'm not accusing you, Jeff. That's the title of the article we're going to be talking about. And you bring up the early 2000s, the summer and the autumn of 2000. Tell us a little bit about that time period. Well, it was sort of like what we hear today, where the, the Federal Reserve under Alan Greenspan was saying, look, this economy is starting to run very hot. We had a slowdown in 1998 and into 1999, coincident with the global Asian financial crisis. It's so we got to, back to accelerating into 1999, which the Fed said, look, this is going to be inflationary. We're going to start raising rates. They started raising the federal funds target rate in the, the summer of 1999 because they thought the economy, the US economy in particular was going to run into an overheated situation 
where it was going to be above, it was, you know, activity was going to be uh, take place above its potential level, and that was going to be sharply inflationary, especially as we saw the unemployment rate come to, come down quite a bit, and it got to low low levels at least at that time, what seemed to be very low levels, and they thought, look, this we're going into a, a, a rising a, a period of ele- elevated inflation that they thought would be prolonged unless they did something about it. And that culminated in, I think it was May of 2000, when the Federal Reserve did a 50 basis point rate hike because they were so unbelievably sure that, it, that consumer prices were going to accelerate in broad fashion. And as Emil's showing you on the chart here, that's exactly what happened, at least for a few, a few months further along. You can see low inflation, in 1998 and 1999, then accelerating through 99 and into 2000, and then you know a real big spike of inflation uh, in uh, late 2000, which seemed to confirm the Fed's view that look, you know the, it seems like the economy is slowing down on the one hand because uh, uh, long-term interest rates were falling at that point, whereas you know we have the CPI going up at the same time, and it sort of seems like there's contradictory signals here. Hold on, wait the bond a minute. Market did is you saying s- one thing where the CPI? Did you say that the the Fed was saying we're getting contradictory signals here from the bond market and CPI? No, they were yeah, aware they of the off, bond they wrote market. off the bond market. Yes, they well, said that's, what, if, that's yeah. They if you were go to getting the- contradictory signals, so they took that signal and they threw it away, and therefore there was no contradiction. CPI was going up, but the bond market was saying. Yeah, which is the other thing. They that throw away the up. CPI and, and pay attention to the re, the re, yields, right? Yeah, and the That's, graph. You know, that, go we, back to the transcripts, and it sounds like a discussion we're having right now, where they say, yes, bond yields are falling, and eh, the bond market's wrong. There's all sorts of other re- You know, the Fed's buying treasuries and, and, and influencing the TIPS yields and all. You know, all the same stuff that you hear about today, where, oh, the central bank is in control of everything, and if yields are going lower, it must be because of some central bank buying program. Um, lower supply, because remember at that time, the U.S. the US federal government was actually running somewhat of a surplus, a dubious surplus, but whatever. And so they convinced themselves that these, these falling bond yields throughout the year of 2000, which coincid- coincided with the, the, bur- the, 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 bu- the, the bursting of the dot-com bubble. And what it said was, the bond was saying, look, we're, we're worried about recession. And the Fed was saying, no, we're worried about this economy going even hotter. And we think that there's nothing more than a temporary slowdown. And that's why you had the 50 basis point rate hike in May of 2000, because the Fed thought, look, this inflation stuff is going to become the bigger problem than any temporary slowdown in the economy. And of course, as we know, that sharp spike in, in, in consumer prices didn't last because early on in 2001, we had the dot-com recession. The bond market was correct about both inflation as well as the direction of the economy. Lower bond yields were the warning, the warning. There were no contradictory signals because the bond market and, and the investors in the bond market were saying with buying safe liquid assets in greater proportion that there was trouble ahead. Ignore the CPI. It's a transitory period of inflation. And am I correct in interpreting that the CPI and PPI readings are backward looking? This is what happened while the bond market is forward looking and Jeff correct me if I'm wrong but you know in my advanced stage my eyesight is failing me but in that graph we were looking at I thought I saw the curve invert twice I saw the 10-year dip below the five-year as we were heading towards 
two times as we were heading towards what would eventually become a recession. So curve inversion, that's as clear a warning as you can, unless you believe the bond market, you know, is... Yeah, you know can come up with any about. number of, as we've heard, you know, especially in 2019, we hear, we hear any number of mainstream arguments why you should throw that out. Yeah. Oh, it means this, it's that. There's there's any number of, you know, in 2019, oh, low R star has completely, it's QE, it's whatever. I mean, again, you go back to 2000, the same type of thing where people can come up with any number of excuses why that you could throw out what has been one of the most reliable signals of inflation economic growth and say, well, this time it's not reliable, except you know, usually it proves to be reliable. <laughs> yeah, the only uh, good, ex the only reason that I've heard that I feel is legitimate as to dismiss curve inversion is that it doesn't work as well in other countries. So in the United States, it is getting it right every time. But in other countries, it's not like the 100% uh, accuracy record. So, all right, you know, that's in other countries, maybe not. But in the United States, it's working very well for a long time. It worked in 2000. Jeff, did we see the exact same story in 2007? A surge in consumer prices, but the forward-looking bond yields tipping its the the nose down and curve inversion did that happen again yeah in some ways it was worse in 2007 and even into the middle of 2008 i think you know maybe it's it's you know it's been 13 years now but if you think back to that time you think about oil prices for example oil mm. prices didn't peak until july of 2008 they were on a parabolic curve upward during the first half of what we come we now know is the Great Recession. Of course, it wasn't a recession, but that's what it's it's commonly referred to as. So, oil prices and commodity prices were were screaming higher in 2007 and into to, into 2008. But it wasn't just commodities. Again, we're showing you here the CPI services less less rent of shelter, which is a core services rate that strips out some of that stuff. And what you see is accelerating consumer prices in the middle of a recession. While the U.S. is in recession, we had a spike in consumer prices. We had a spike in commodity prices that a lot of people, you know, again, the Federal Reserve in early 2008 was more concerned that their rescue of the banking system would end up being too much. They were thinking, you know, by the time you get to 2009 with commodity prices and accelerating consumer prices, we might have an inflation problem on our hands. That was the mainstream line of view up until uh, Lehman Brothers and AIG and everything else in August and September of 2008. But when you got up to, you know, June, in the, especially in the aftermath of Bear Stearns, so April, May, June, July, and even into August of 2008, they were convinced, and a lot of people in the media were convinced, we would not only avoid a recession, that the Federal Reserve had done too much. There was too much money printing, too much of a rescue. And then the CPI seemed to, con con seemed to uh, confirm that view because we had this short-term spike in consumer prices and everybody thought the the biggest risk then was inflation not deflate what are you talking about deflation all that stuff there's no possible the fed is on top of everything so again it's inflation is is a broad-based sustained trend in consumer prices and what we saw in 2008 like 2001 were background economic conditions and monetary conditions that were in no way conducive to that spike in a short-term spike in consumer prices being anything more than that. I was working for a airline 
in their treasury department during 2008 when oil was going through the roof and we were apoplectic jeff we didn't know what to do it was insanity i think it 160 150 at one point it was insanity and for airlines the biggest cost is oil and personnel so it it was just devastating we didn't know we couldn't imagine that just around the corner we were heading into uh, a depression it would it was shocking so yeah it's, Jeff. right i mean that's the thing it seemed, it seemed like uh, especially during that, that that middle part of 2008 it just slipped flipped on a dime it switched on a dime right it just mm -hmm. One day it's, oh my God, consumer prices are out of control. It's 1970 all over again. And then the next day it's like, wait a minute, this is 1929. You know, we're heading into a deflationary period. And, and that's, I think the point here, what we're trying to make is that, look, it's, it's not un inconceivable. And in fact, it actually does happen where consumer prices go in one direction when underlying all of that is completely the opposite direction. And the people, people that we want to turn to for advice on that is the bond market. Now, People right, that, and the people that most people turn to advice on that is the exact wrong people. Because we're taught, hey, Alan Greenspan, Ben Bernanke, who knows better about inflation, deflation than these people? Nobody. And it turns out time and again that they get there completely wrong. And they get it completely wrong because they don't want to understand the fundamentals. They think they have, they have a worldview that they believe in. They think that it works for them when, in fact, it doesn't really work for them. And you can see that when they talk, you know, 2000 when they're when they're arguing oh yields are falling but you know we gotta we gotta ignore that because we know better than the bond market does and that's really the attitude that you see repeated over and over again again 2008 you know especially in that that the interim period after bear stearns when things looked like they were picking up you see them talking again about oh there's too much pessimism in the bond market there's too much pessimism in libor when it turned out those were the correct signals not the uh, ben bernanke a lot of the books behind me are mysteries. I, I love them. Uh, thrillers, crime thrillers. And of course, the people that are watching the show, they're deducing, as Sherlock Holmes would, where we're going. And that's that in April, it was reported in the United States that inflation was like 2008, 2000. It was so much higher than expected. In fact, if I understand correctly, Jeff, the the data was released as a as a gif it was that picture of the nuclear bombs going off in the 50s where the buildings and the trees are you know they're like this that's all they said there wasn't even any numbers they said what is the cpi and they showed that shock wave of heat jeff but you managed to track down what the actual numbers were i believe from the bls so what did what did you find out yeah, and they were. There were a lot of, uh, first of all, the CPI rates, uh, whether it's the core rate or the headline rate, they all came in better, much higher than expected to begin with. Nuclear and they were hot. expected to be significant of just from base effects alone. So there was a degree of, of upward, um, you, know, uh, you know, unexpected uh, contributions from actual increases in consumer prices, not just statistical problems. But, you know, I think the, the number that most people focused on was the monthly change in the core CPI. Which again, we're not talking about oil. We're not talking about commodity, you know, food prices, things like that. We're talking about just the, the core CPI without food and energy. And on the monthly change, it was something like eight, 82 or 85, 85 basis points, which was the highest monthly change since 1982. So going back to the great inflation itself, and that's really kind of what I think got most people's attention because here you have a core CPI number that was more at home in the great inflation than anything that we had seen since uh, 2008, certainly. 
except for that one month last year, which is something what I pointed out. Good. Well, go ahead and just segue right into that. You're reminding us that this happened last year. I guess people will say, well, that was the corona. So, because there but were... It was, yeah, but it was the same setup. We, we had reopening, we had QE, we had the government payments, we had all of these things that were supposed to be highly inflationary. And then right there, you see in July of 2020, this, the core, again, we're talking about the core CPI monthly change, it was more than 50 basis points for July, which at that time had been the highest since the 1990s. So the highest in 30 years. And they, I, if you think back to last summer, you probably remember hearing something about it because back then everybody was in an inflation panic too. In the initial stages of reopening, we, all the same arguments were, were, were put out there. You know, look, the government is spending money, direct helicopter payments into the, the real economy. If you believe in the QE money printing story, sure, you add that to because the, the Federal Reserve's going nuts and we have reopening, we have pent up demand, we have all of these things being unleashed. And what ended up happening was we had a couple months of accelerated consumer prices. And then once all of that, especially government stimulus or the government stipends started to run dry, guess what happened? Consumer prices decelerated all over again. And last year's inflation paranoia or inflation hysteria proved to be transitory. And it proved to be transitory because there was nothing else behind it except for this massive artificial injection of exogenous excesses, if you want to call it that. And, and this is perhaps the, the key graph that we want to take away from this article. We're going to transition and talk about PPI in a second. And we'll talk about bond prices and what they're doing and how they're reacting to both CPI and PPI recently. But I suppose this is the core graph that we want to get across. And how would I describe this to people? I guess I would describe it who people who are listening on podcasts that, that we see a number of shark teeth of inflation. What we're graphing here is CPI, services, less rent and shelter. And we see shark teeth in 2000, in 2003, 2006, 2008, and then all during our depression. And as you've labeled them, they're all transitory. And therefore, perhaps we shouldn't be surprised if the one we're experiencing right now will prove to be transitory. Yeah, it's, and I think that's part of the argument that people are making in favor of inflation, that what's happening right now is something new. Hmm. We've, we haven't seen this since the 70s, and it's just simply not true. We see this repeatedly. Again, we've see, it, it absolutely can be the case where consumer prices accelerated over a short-term or intermediate-term period. At the same time, the underlying macro factors or the underlying economy itself wouldn't seem to be conducive to that type of result. It can and does happen. So what we're seeing today is nothing new. It's not something completely, utterly different outside of our experience. In fact, you need only go back 13 years to see that sharp, the sharpest contrast available. You know, accelerating consumer prices during the first half of what had been the worst recession since the 30s. And again, it proved to be transitory because over time, what matters is the, the economic fundamentals, the background, the macro stuff. We're going to transition to PPI right now. I think the key, this is what I always think of, Jeff, and tell me what you, if you think of this as well. We are in a depression. I know you don't like using that word, but that's the background context. And until we escape that depression, 
we should not expect to see inflation if inflation persistent sustained economic booming inflation is a monetary phenomenon driven by economic activity uh, the good kind and huge government spending and huge central banks printing is not going to change that condition because we've seen it for 20 years or more in Japan and 15 years in the rest of the world so I need to see something new from the monetary order from the politicians not just bigger bigger is not going to cut it a generation has passed Jeff yeah and I think that's a, that's I'm really bigger. the point we're trying to make here is that as long as that remains the same I was asked on Real Vision this week you know Ed Harris Ooh, he said look he said look what would change your mind because that's what people always want to know what would change your mind and say yes this is inflationary and you just hit it right on the head uh, Emil when you said look we need to see something change at the baseline level what is it that's causing this problem and it gets back to the euro dollar system the bank balance sheet constrictions all those other things that we talk about we don't need to go into here but as long as that remains the case it's like we have a ceiling you know the economy the global economy has a ceiling where we're never going to get up into inflation because something's always going to stop it the, the economic fundamentals a monetary disruption whatever it's been over the last 15 years there's always something that will stop it before it becomes too far because it can never get too far and so as long as this, as long as the underlying factors remain in in you know ongoing there's really nothing we can do to change that there's a ceiling on growth which means there's going to always these 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 inflation scares that we keep going through will never be anything more than really underwhelming reflationary periods because there's that ceiling we're always going to run into. When is your show going to appear on Real Vision with Ed Harrison? Did he tell you when? I think that was live last on uh, Thursday. Okay. I was at a commission last week, so I missed it. Well, I hope it was a good show. I'm playing hard to get with Real Vision, but I guess so are they. They haven't contacted me. I haven't contacted them either, but one of us so will you have to, one you have day. To show up at, you have to go to their offices in New York and just bang on the door until they let you in. That's, that's, <laughs> that's what I had to do. Okay. You've got to be persistent. What CPI and PPI? May 13th, 2021, Alhambra Investments. This is sort of the part two of what we're talking about. The day before, we found out what CPI was. It was a face-melting nuclear explosion from the 1950s. PPI was a hydrogen bomb. Is that right, Jeff? Yeah, it was almost like they were meant to be one after the other, right? Is that you get blown away by the, the nuclear bomb, and then you get hit with the hydrogen bomb the next day. You know, CPI rate that was just unbelievably huge. 17 and a quarter percent higher year over year. There were no survivors, Jeff. Base effects, however, were a huge part of it, much more than the limited contributions they made for April CPI, so you write. Compared to April 2019, the commodity PPI was up just 7.6%, or rather a 3.7% annual rate. And then you go and talk about the headline overall big jump, 9.4% year over year. Um, let's see here, the highest number since the summer of 2008. That's up only 3.7% versus two years, though. Yep. So that's an annual rate of 1.8%. That's kind of... Uh, yeah. hmm. It's kind of underwhelming, right? A little bit, yeah. And I think that's you know that's the point. The PPI, when the headline numbers came out, of course, you have the base effects and everything. Oh, highest since 2008. 
to us, that's that's we're like, wait a minute, why wasn't it more? When as most people, it's like after the CPI, it's oh my god, inflation, it's here, it's 1975 all over again. When you start digging into details, you're like, no, there really isn't a whole lot to the PPI besides the you know headline numbers, and even the 17 percent commodity number is only the highest since I believe 2018. So we saw something like that in commodities just a few years ago, which, I mean, if you go back to 2018, as you and I both well know, Mm -mm. that was the last time we heard all this inflation stuff. And, oh, this time is definitely different. Look, even Jay Powell says so and all this other stuff. So the fact that, you know, we keep going back to is, has something meaningfully changed? Are we really seeing something different in these CPI and PPI numbers? And up until this point, we can say, no, we're not seeing anything different. In fact, in the PPI especially, we saw all the same stuff just a couple of years ago. Well, that's, as the big Lebowski would say, that's just like your opinion, man. Of course it's opinion. But, you know, whose opinion we should take very seriously are bonds. And that's really the main takeaway from this article that we're discussing, is you spend a little bit of time on the PPI numbers, and then you go through the bonds, several versions. We talk about auctions, and we talk about how bond yields reacted that particular day and the day before. Uh, do you what, what can you share? How did bonds react to yeah, this? On, the, on the, the day of the CPI, the bond yield, the bond market sold off pretty hard. You know, yield spiked you know quite a bit, especially at the long end of the Treasury curve, which we would expect. I mean, because it was unexpected, it was much higher than anticipated. All that stuff. But then on when the, uh, the day of the PPI, the very, the very next day from the CPI, bond yields started coming back down. And where they are now is lower than when they started before the CPI. Right. So you have to say, well, wait a minute. This is, you know, everybody's saying the inflation, as you pointed out from the beginning, Isabella Kaminsky going, Kaminsky going through all of those articles. This is supposed to be this radical shift toward a completely different paradigm. Yet the bond market going back to the end of March is saying, wait a minute, we're, we're not really, you know, yeah, we see this, the, the CPI, we see the PPI, we know the PC deflator is going to be big, all this, other, we know what commodities are doing, but yet we're not convinced this is anything other than a short run change. I'm showing the yield of the 10 year note bond. I don't know why they call it a note. It should be called a bond, right? So I'm looking at trading no, there's economic. Actually, there, you can't, no, there's there's legal reasons it's called a note. And it goes really? back to the early days of uh, you know World War One. Huh. Well, Bonds and notes had to have different features. So there's okay, actually a reason well. they call them a note. Well, the excellent. Well, that we should do a whole show on that. We should. Good. I'm writing it down. Okay, but basically <laughs> what I'm showing here is the yield. I don't see the day they announced this incredible inflation. I really don't you would see think, it. Right, exactly. You would think there would be this huge upward sharp spike. And on the day it happened, it was a pretty substantial spike, but it was nothing out of not, the I mean, Not unusual. Usual market to... fluctuation, exactly. It's... And so you, you, you think, you hear in the media how this is a major, major thing. And then the bond market sort of shrugs like, okay, yeah, we kind of knew the CPI was gonna be big. We saw it last summer. That's the secondary market, what I'm showing now, the yield. The primary market is the auction. And you say here that there was 41 billion in new 10-year notes mere hours after the shocking CPI figures. Jeff, how did the U.S. Treasuries manage to sell any of these? Did they go out into the streets? Did they tackle people, drag them into the Treasury Department and force them at gunpoint or knife point? 
or perhaps the end of a feather tickle him to death. How did people, who do they sell these to? Anyone? I Nobody. think, you know, the dealers were licking their chops because the sell-off in the secondary market allowed them to buy up the, the auction paper, which is the best paper, at an even better price. So it was the, one of the best 10-year treasury auctions in some time. During this day, the very day the CPI came out. Then we had another auction. You, write, you wrote the afternoon that you were writing that, which was the 13th of May. And this was the selling of four-week bills. And bills very important. As our audience knows, this is uh, the best of the best collateral for the monetary system in the shadows. So what bills are doing, extremely important. I'm going to pull up a graph, but did we see any other message than what we've been talking about right now from the bond market in the bills? Oh, the bill side of things, it was, it was essentially more, more demand for bills. In fact, the four-week bill has been trading down near zero. Uh, almost consistently now and it has it has for aug at auction prices too so as far as the four-week bill goes you know we're seeing nothing nothing changing that was a point that you made in here jeff if i remember you said that we've been ringing in zeros on these bills um tell us about it it seems like it's important it's unusual but yeah, the, the auction, the four-week auctions have been triple zeros, which is, is zero that? for the high yield, the median yield, and the low yield. And that's because, that's simply because the the, uh, the U.S. Treasury won't sell bills at a negative a negative rate. If they did, I'm, I'm almost positive that you'd see low and uh, median yields below zero. So there's tremendous demand for especially short-term paper, and it's getting it's compressing all the bills down to the, out to the 12-month bill uh, for several reasons that have nothing to do with the bond market panicking about inflation. Jeff, I'm gonna read a, uh, a final key takeaway. And then if we haven't discussed something that you want to, if you want me to pull up some graphs, you let me know. But I think this summarizes very well the, the outlook, that, the message you were trying to get across here. Maybe this all changes if the price estimates keep going in, coming in hot month after month beyond this one and bonds resume their previous upward turn, having their collective minds changed by events. Balance of probabilities right now, however, have pretty firmly demonstrated relatively firm expectations, even belief in transitory, despite this week's big CPI and PPI exacta. Yeah, I think the, the only thing for us is that, look, there are any number of reasons that people are going to say, throw out the bond stuff. It's the bond signal has tainted. It's it's whatever. And what we'll say is, look, yes, we've heard this time and time again. If there is if there is something different right now, it's that we find ourselves in the uncomfortable position of agreeing with Jay Powell and the FOMC, who are finally saying for the first time in forever, saying maybe we should pay attention. Well, they're not saying we should pay attention to bond yields, but they're saying. This is transitory, which puts them on the same side as the bond market. Whether or not they actually are paying attention to bonds any more than they ever have, we don't know. We won't know until transcripts come out five years down the road. But for now, it's you know we're sort of in the uncomfortable position of agreeing with people who often get the inflate or always get the inflation numbers wrong. But in this case, they at least have a, a, a more legitimate case for saying transitory inflation because of any of the number of reasons we just went over. 
It reminds me a little bit of the 2018-2019 time period when you wrote how, again, events were agreeing with Jay Powell. But if you have taken a, you know, he was cutting rates and rates were falling down, uh, the, the bond market. But if you looked at previous history, you saw the central bank consistently going in the wrong direction than which markets were with the way they were heading. So I think Jay Powell has had a couple of instances now where things were going in the direction he was heading. Do you know what I'm trying to say? Do you remember? Yes. Do you remember yeah. that 2018, 2019 period? Like people were saying, oh, the central bank is doing the right thing. They just stumbled into it. I, I'm thinking of the squirrel and the blind blindness and the nuts. How, if you can yeah, make sense of that scrambled eggs, help the, me. The broken, the broken clock or the stopped clock is right twice a, twice a day, right? I and mean, I think that's kind of where we are with the central bankers. So yeah, it's sort of, you know, it's ironic in one sense and it's uncomfortable from our perspective because we're usually conditioned just looking at this, whatever central bankers are saying is probably going to turn out to be the opposite. But in this case, you know, Powell, you know, because of the COVID recession, I think he can be more honest and open about things in a way that he certainly couldn't, his predecessor couldn't, uh, certainly in 2008. Because expectations. Yeah. Exactly. So... so he can say, look, it ain't our fault. We didn't do this. So, yeah, we don't expect any more than transitory inflation here because the macro environment is completely, utterly devoid of any possible way for sustained broad-based consumer prices. Jeff, did you have a good time? With the show? Absolutely. This it's, we always love talking about 1970s. Let's do it again tomorrow. Then we're gonna okay punch out a few fast shows this week. Inflation, 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 inflation. Right. And bonds. What else? Right. Cryptocurrency. China. What else have I missed? We got tick data to go over. We got all sorts of good stuff. Ladies and gentlemen, tick data. Don't go anywhere. <laughs>